Copycat, let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 21st, 2017, the Equinox edition, the Rocket Man edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in New York City this week and we're taping a day early because of the Jewish New Year holiday, which Emily and I will be observing tomorrow. Uh, which Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. I'm, just, I'm yeah. just identifying it for maybe people who don't use that term, but that's okay. That's Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. You're in New Haven, right, Emily? I am in New Haven, yes. Hello. And then John Dickerson, my number one favorite Face the Nation host (laughs) on CBS. You're in D.C. Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you. Shana Tova to all our listeners who listen to this on Rosh Hashanah. Uh, I don't think you're supposed to listen to I was going to say, can you do that? on Rosh Hashanah. Well, you know, if you kind of like pre-downloaded it. Plus, we have plenty of secular Jewish listeners out there. David, yeah. for example, I don't think is going to be um, not yeah. listening to podcasts yes. if he has a chance. May I ask a religious question, which is, is, is um, the secular uh, observer of the Jewish holidays the same as the secular observer of, say, Christmas? Or, or is the secular observer of the Jewish holidays more doing more in observation than Christmas or vice versa? Well, there's such a range, right? I mean, you could have the secular observer who just, like, lights a candle or eats an apple with honey and says a blessing. That's, like, getting my, into my religion, fa- right? My father has become – I'm sorry, Pa, I'm about to – to hang you out to dry. My father has become a secular observer of Yom Kippur who who ostentatiously has a lunch out on Yom Kippur. Out. He yes. goes out. Which you're not supposed to do. For lunch he doesn't with even, He's not like furtively snacking. No. He's like having lunch out. That's excellent. Because there are plenty of people who put up Christmas trees, but that's not really religious. Um, right. Well, I guess it's interesting. When does it go from just being a symbol to something that you feel like is religious observance? Maybe for some people, Christmas trees are religious. It's just that oh, they're so right omnipresent everywhere. Like we don't necessarily think of them that way. Right. But they are. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, for holiday, many people, right? they're not. We don't. We can. Do and that's this our show our, for today. Yeah, we can do this at our <laughs> conundrum show if you'd like. Uh, On this week's Gab Fest, political Gab Fest, the return of Obamacare repeal now even worse than ever. Will the Senate sneak through the Graham Cassidy bill? Then what is Bob Mueller up to? How will his shock and awe prosecutorial tactics affect his investigation of the Trump campaign's potential collusion with Russia? Then. President Trump's unusual speech to the United Nations. What does it mean for U.S. foreign policy? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And of course, a reminder, we have two great live shows coming up for you on October 25th, a Wednesday at the Reskin Theater in Chicago. We will be doing a live gab fest. Kim Fox, the state attorney of Cook County, Chicago's number one top prosecutor and a reform prosecutor to boot is going to be our special guest for that show. It's going to be wonderful. Also, lots of other topics to discuss while we're at the Reskin Theater. Tickets are at slate.com slash live for our October 25th show. And our annual conundrum show we will be doing live in Boston at the Wilbur Theater on December 6th. That Wilbur! Is that, that is <laughs> some pig. I think we had that joke last year. When we I know, that. but I've realized it should, be, uh, yeah. it should be revived in some fashion. And we also have special guests for that, special guests for that show, which is that they might be giants, the 
fabulous band is going to be playing with us. They'll open and be the house band for our conundrums. So get tickets for that. Also at Slate.com. What's that date again, David? December 6th, the day before Pearl Harbor Day at the Wilbur Theater in Boston. The Senate will probably shortly be considering the Graham-Casty bill to overturn the Affordable Care Act, or as the bill is known officially, the Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Not This Garbage Again bill, attempting to jam through this bill by September 30th with a bare majority under reconciliation, without a hearing, without a CBO score, with barely a text. That's what the Senate is up to. By many accounts, this is the worst of the Obamacare repeal bills that we've had And there have been a whole bunch of them, (laughs) but this is the worst of them for reasons we can discuss. Yet, John Dickerson, it seems like this is actually also the one that may be most likely to pass. Is that right? Well, I I mean, only— Are we being being, uh, pearl-clutching? No, 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 no. I think—well, I guess it's possible to be both, which is to say that a party that is highly unified and under a lot of pressure to pass something, anything, is always— very close to passing some kind of health care if the, if the rules are under reconciliation they only need a simple majority. On the other hand, they only have 52 Republican senators and therefore even when there's all of that pressure, it's still very possible uh, that something might not pass. So the things that people – that Republicans objected to in the – in BICRA, the last attempt by Republicans to replace, repeal, modify the Affordable Care Act, the objections are – worse for this bill for those who voted against it than they were last time, either on the Medicaid side in terms of coverage, on the pre-existing conditions side in terms of guarantees for those who have pre-existing conditions, and on the regular order side. We focused a lot on John McCain last time. He has said that he wants to see regular order followed. There is no way they can follow regular order between now and the 30th of September. People might say somehow that it's been followed in some crazy way, but the point of regular order is to have input from all interested parties. You could even just imagine a Republican regular order where you had hearings and lots of people came in and gave you advice and counsel on what you're going to do. That hasn't happened. The second is that you get some information from CBO about what will happen with this piece of legislation. legislation. That won't happen. So there is no regular order here. So on the other hand, there's all this pressure. So that's where things stand. So Emily, let's talk through some of the key provisions of the bill. Uh, must so we? Yes, we must. We must because it's they're shocking. They're shocking. It's it shocking. I agree. So you you start and then I'll indignantly interrupt you and add other ones. Go ahead. Please. Well, I mean, so the way this bill differs from the previous ones is by giving the states lots of, quote, flexibility. The reality of that flexibility is it comes with much less money. So if you take away many tens of billions of dollars, the flexibility you're giving the states is to figure out how to make healthcare cheaper, i.e. take it away from people, make fewer people eligible for subsidies. And then there's a cap on Medicaid, which means that all the problems with people losing their Medicaid coverage are going to come back just as they were there for the previous bills. And then there's this really complicated formula for how each state gets money, which means essentially that the blue states will be losers and some of the red states will be winners. But there are a lot of states... Ohio, Alaska, West Virginia, Kentucky, a couple others that have senators that have been uncertain about whether to support these draconian health care bills. And those states, too, would be punished. So when you look at this overall, I mean, look, you can't squeeze hundreds of billions of dollars out of government subsidies and paying for health care and wind up with the same number of people being covered unless you do something incredible to bring down costs. And there's nothing in this bill to bring down costs, though I suppose the Republican argument for it is that somehow the private market will accomplish that feat and premiums will be lower for for some healthy and younger people. But, you know, really what we just see here is millions of people losing their health care coverage. The estimates, the sort of pre-CBO estimates are like 30 million people. Yeah, I mean, just to go a little bit more into some of those details. So immediately, the funding would be about 13 or 14 percent less than what there is now. So the there'd be immediately 13 or 14 percent less money available to help provide insurance for all these people who are getting insurance under Medicaid and Obamacare. Over time, that would that compared to baseline, it would drop to about 40 percent less. So just be massively less money available. 
on by Medicaid. By 2026, right? 2026, yeah. And, and t- at 2026, there were, the, the subsidies would end. Nothing. There would be zero. Yeah. So it would go to effectively be, you know, an enormous cut in 2026. And on Medicaid, it would basically end Medicaid as an entitlement effectively by making it a, a block grant. States could have tremendous latitude about who they covered and for what and, you know, could be quite draconian in as as a number of states has been about cutting people off the rolls if you miss a payment, cutting people off the rolls if you're you fail a drug test. So the availability of Medicaid as entitlement would be in severe danger. Uh, there'd be no mandate. So, again, there'd be nothing to keep people in the markets. It is not clear that states would really have to protect pre-existing conditions that 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 guaranteed issue might be at risk. It's also, I think, the very premise of it, which is that states are going to come up with a better insurance market than the federal government will, is a, is a totally flawed premise. There's no reason to think that North Dakota would actually be better at coming up with a effective market for insurance in, it, in its state than the, the national government is. There's every reason to think it would be worse, in fact. It really seems insane. Sorry, John, go ahead. I don't know whether states might not be able to come up with better experimentation experiments. I but I think the as a matter of healthcare economics, I think the I'm not sure federalism works with healthcare in the way it would work with other kinds of programs that there's the the I, I, let, sorry to inter- interrupt you. Just, I think what I mean by that is it's certainly like states like Massachusetts and and uh, Vermont and I think Kentucky, they've all done interesting state level experiments, but they're within pretty constrained rules. Like they have to do it. They have to make sure that their experiments meet certain sets of requirements about how much people are covered and what the safety net is. And I think what this bill is takes away a lot of those guarantees and yeah. a lot of those those requirements yeah. that and so that's what what I would well, would flag. Well, One, and it takes away the money, right? Yeah. I mean, the Cassidy right. Collins bill, which was an earlier version of give the states more flexibility, made it easier for states to get waivers and try their own things, but it did it without just like taking all of the money out of the piggy bank. And I mean, there is a marvel in all of this, which is like the journey of Bill Cassidy. And uh, Jimmy Kimmel has already gone after him this week. This guy, Bill Cassidy, just lied right to my face. Do you believe that every American, regardless of income, should be able to get regular checkups, maternity care, et cetera, all of those things that people who have health care get and need? Yep. So yep is Washington for nope, I guess. <laughs> and I never imagined I would get involved in something like this. This is not my area of expertise. My area of expertise is eating pizza, and that's really about it. <laughs> But we can't let him do this to our children and our senior citizens and our veterans and or to any of us. And by the way, before you post a nasty Facebook message saying I'm politicizing my son's health problems, I want you to know I am politicizing my son's health problems because I have to. But my family has health insurance. We don't have to worry about this, but other people do. So you can shove your disgusting comments where your doctor won't be giving you a prostate exam <laughs> once they take your health care benefits away. It is kind of amazing to watch a senator who is a physician who was working with Susan Collins on a kind of middle path move so far to the right without giving any kind of, I think, coherent explanation for how he arrived there. We should also note that Senator Cassidy's argument for what will happen in Medicaid, his argument is you give states less money, but the flexibility will cause all these efficiencies. And so people on Medicaid will actually get more options and lower price coverage. CBO has specifically in at least one, if not two, of its assessments of previous bills totally shot through that theory. I mean, it says that this is not the way people behave, particularly people on Medicaid when it comes to now. So what's the balance of the evidence? You have a bunch of healthcare economists on the one hand at CBO who spend their lives studying how this kind of thing works. And then you have what's essentially just a theory on the other hand about the way the market will work. Both have theories. One is the the result of years of training. The other is a person who, Senator Cassidy was a doctor and knows how to do medicine, but um, doesn't have the equal experience with the way the healthcare market works. And even if you decided, well, uh, we're not sure who's right, even though I would argue that the that the weight of expertise on here is clearly on the side of, of CBO, there's nothing written into the bill or contemplated here that would um, prepare for an eventuality if, uh, if, if Cassidy turned out to be wrong and the market didn't work this way. Um, 
Not to mention the fact there are flaws in the bill, like there's no definition of the way states have so much latitude um, that that um, unlike, say, the Affordable Care Act, where the terms were carefully defined, the terms are not defined here. So it's an incentive, even more of an incentive um, to what some people would call flexibility. Others would call basically shuttling people who are expensive and sick off the rolls. Um, but uh, there's no like there's no backstop here in case this doesn't work in case the theory doesn't work the way they would like there's nothing written in that says okay for those who are the most vulnerable who are going to be affected here we've got a safety net in case our theory doesn't work out yeah it's i mean what's what's weird about it is it's not really a plan it's very much a kind of repeal and hope it's sort of like we're going to repeal it and you know states you develop a plan in the next two and a half years like you know, you, you, it's on you in two and a half years. Go, you, you just deal with it. It's your problem to solve. Sorry. Later. Goodbye. Uh, and here's, well, a bit, a here's, here's, here's 87 cents on the dollar to deal with it. Right. But as a political matter, I've thought for months that throwing this to the states would have some appeal because it breaks the national narrative of the destruction of the Affordable Care yeah. Act into 50 different little pieces that yeah. are going to be quite hard for the press to chase and for people to really understand and keep track of. I mean, that was the appeal I thought politically of Collins Cassidy. This is like some, you know, like half eaten monster version of that bill where you have the quote flexibility without the money. I, one thing I don't understand, Emily or John, is I don't really understand why the Republicans are bothering with this. This is going to if it passes, it's going to cause enormous amounts of outrage and disconcertion among the populace. They've already, everyone has sort of baked in the fact that they failed at it. It doesn't seem to me that Republican disappointment about the failure to pass an Obamacare repeal is is at a simmering, boiling, you know, rage. I feel like they're doing this, you know, they want to, you know, meet the, the promise that they made uh, seven years ago, but people have already assumed that people already say they failed at it. And so people have almost moved on from this. And the idea that they would revive it and then maybe possibly pass such a terrible bill feels to me perverse and odd and not really worth it when they should just go ahead and pass their dumb tax cut. Well, it does seem like the sort of rise of the tax reform slash tax cut, which we really, I suppose, should just call a tax cut, might make it less likely. But I guess my question for John about this is I can imagine two reasons. One is that there is a way in which the constant refrain of like their their healthcare debacle their failure all of that is eating away at them and they don't like those news stories and they're not really headlines anymore but that that narrative is troubling to them but the other thing i've been wondering about is whether in some sense there's a connection here to trump reaching out to schumer and pelosi where that puts the Republicans on their heels and makes them want to prove themselves to Trump, that they can also do something, and that there is a way in which Trump appearing to switch sides has actually been effective, if you think that passing this bill is truly a victory, as opposed to just, like, hanging a huge political problem around their necks. I don't know. That's an interesting theory about, you know, reacting to the way President Trump has been, been flirting a little bit with Democrats. It could be this bill and the White House support for it. And by the way, we should mo- we should mention the White House opposition to and House Speaker Paul Ryan's opposition to the bipartisan approach being put together by Lamar Alexander, Republican and Patty Murray, a Democrat, which is, in fact, going through regular order and is, in fact, you know, the bipartisan approach of of a kind that's much closer to actual bipartisanship than even what's been talked about in the last couple of weeks. That approach is being sublimated to this Graham Cassidy. So that should be noted. I, I think just to uh, David's point about people, I think there is rage in the, in the Republican ranks that, the, um, that Congress hasn't done anything. And I think they need more than just, even if they weren't, even if the grassroots wasn't enraged, I think they need more than that in an off year where you've got an, a very unpopular president. You need people to be enthusiastic. And if Republicans can say, look, we gave more control to the states, that's from the hymnal. So it's not just that we, we did something, but we did something in keeping with one of the things people have heard about for a long time. I'd quote Pat Roberts, who's in the Vox on Wednesday. Uh, they went to nine Republican senators and asked them to explain what um, Graham Cassidy did. And this is what Roberts, a Republican from Kansas, said. 
It's the last stage out of Dodge City. I'm from Dodge City. So it's the last stage out to do anything. Restoring decision-making back to the states is always a good idea, but this is not the best possible bill. This is the best possible bill under the circumstances. If we do nothing, I think it has a tremendous impact on the 2018 elections and whether or not Republicans still maintain control and we have control of the gavel. And then there's a little back and forth with the reporter. And finally, Robert says, look, we're in the backseat of a convertible being driven by Thelma and Louise, and we're headed towards the canyon. That's a movie that you've probably never seen. The reporter says he's seen it. So Robert says, we have to get out of the car, and you have to have a car to get into. And this is the only car there is. So that's two different metaphors, stagecoach and car. Presumably, other transportation metaphors are also available. But neither of those is very good. And that gives you some sense of what even somebody who's supporting the bill is not doing it on the merits. It's, it's a last minute hodgepodge that even its supporters don't think is very good. I mean, you know, there is one other form of transportation available. And I don't want to leave it, leave this topic without talking about it. And that's the private jet. I would just like, <laughs> I would just like to end this round because the, the, to me, like of all the kind of little bits of shocking crap that have been passed through my gullet in, in the past <laughs> few weeks, to probably the most distasteful one was this story that it emerged yesterday, I think, from Politico about HHS Secretary Tom Price, who has been gadding about the East Coast on private jets. It's just disgusting. It is disgusting. He took a tw- you know $25,000 minimum private jet ride to Philadelphia from Washington, something where you could have gotten a train That's for a couple necessary. hundred bucks. Yeah, no, it, less. It's, uh, you know, a flight for 400 bucks, a bus, all of which would have gotten him there just as fast. And this is he took, I think, three private jet flights in the East Coast in a single week. This is totally out of the norm for cabinet secretaries, totally unnecessary, unbelievably wasteful and just deserves it deserves in, in any in any previous presidency that I can recall. This would be, oh, you're out. You're gone. This is a disgrace. You're wasting government funds. And this one, it's like, it, you know, it'll be a it'll be a 12 hour story. But I just want to flag it. And you didn't even mention Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin taking a government plane to watch the um, eclipse. Maybe because you're so yeah. in love that with was the eclipse that, that, that you could also imagine that, that was abuse. outrageous. That was outrageous. And also, didn't he ask outrageous. for he asked for private jets for his honeymoon? This is a man who's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Asked for private yeah. jets to go on his honeymoon. Come on, right. John. Why is this? Why? Why? Why does this not? Why is this not? Uh, why does this not just gin up the outrage machine? It's because we already outraged about so many other different things. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Although the fact that you know about it is a little bit. I mean, there there has been some outrage, but but the bigger question is that the party that and I just spent a lot of time going over the 1990 um, Budget Act and you know uh, conservatives have for a long time been furious about the waste fraud and abuse in government and so you would think that this would raise some uh, irritation on the part of people who are deficit and budget hawks um, who see it not just you know the symbolic nature of the fact that when people get into office the you know what they used to call Potomac fever in the in the George W. Bush administration kicks in. There was a memo they sent out to staffers at the beginning of the Bush administration that said, uh, and it was actually quite a good memo that basically said, "Don't ever get comfortable in your job because you work for the American people, and these perks that you will start assigning yourself are offensive to the people you work for." And it was a really good kind of. I don't know whether it really worked in the end, but you know these are two signs of things that. Um, that would seem to run afoul of that. Outrageous. Well, last, uh, actually, question on this, John. If uh, if there's a vote on Graham Cassidy, when is it likely to take place? I think next Wednesday is the is what I read. I don't know whether that's. I mean, I, that might actually be flexible, but I think that's what I've heard. All right. We will, of course, have a Slate Plus topic for those of you who are Slate Plus members. An extra topic that we do every week, and this week we're going to talk about eavesdropping when is it okay pegged to the hilarious story of the president's lawyer who was having a very loud conversation about very private presidential law business outside at a restaurant and was overheard by a new york times reporter if you are not yet a slate plus member go to slate.com slash gabfest plus become a member and eavesdrop on our conversation about that this episode of the gabfest is sponsored by sap first the bad news SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. 
but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia and identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. CNN and the New York Times reported on movement in Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election this week. CNN reported that Paul Manafort, the Trump campaign chairman for briefly during the campaign and Trump uh, advisor, was surveilled twice under a FISA warrant, a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant, both before the 2016 campaign and then again during its later stages and, and after the 2016 campaign and perhaps into the presidency of President Trump. The New York Times reported that Mueller has engaged in what they describe as shock and awe tactics for his investigation. In particular, he is putting the screws to Manafort. He broke into his house, picked the lock on his house to break into it uh, and gather documents. He has been subpoenaing close associates and other aggressive tactics. Emily, what what is Mueller up to, first of all? Well, I mean, it seems clear that Mueller is putting a squeeze on Paul Manafort, right? And so this could be about indicting Manafort. The Times reported this week that Manafort was told by federal agents that the government plans to indict him. And then there's also the question of what Manafort would give up um, about someone else in Trump's inner circle or Trump himself. I love all these quotes in the media about how Mueller's behaving more like he's going after, you know, the mob or a crime syndicate than a kind of typical polite white collar investigation where both sides agree to the scope of what some a witness is going to talk about before they show up. It's just usually a bit more mannerly. And uh, Mueller is casting that aside. And he's moving quite quickly to talk to different witnesses. And then there's, you know, the sort of parallel push about Flynn, Michael Flynn, who also seems to be the person we know is the most legally vulnerable. And again, I mean, from the beginning, it has seemed clear or that, you know, one strong theory is that these are the people who are the most likely to make a deal that would cough up someone else of greater importance. We'll see as this progresses. I think the other thing that happened this week was a big deal is that we learned that there's a subpoena of Facebook to turn over information about these ads that were sold to people affiliated with the Russian government or working or whatever, the sort of Russian interference in the election through Facebook. Because if Facebook really has to give up a lot of information about what those accounts were, who they came from, what they were doing how they were targeting, that would help the government learn about whether there's any connection to the provision of data from inside the Trump campaign. One of the things I I like about the game theory of all of this is that I kind of assume that no one will feel, uh, that Flynn and Manafort would not feel any particular loyalty to Trump. That Trump has no history of loyalty to anybody. And Manafort and Flynn both seem like people who are quite interested in protecting themselves and are, you know, concerned with self. And I, I find it hard to imagine that unlike, say, some of Nixon's close associates who are very loyal to Nixon and really wanted to protect him, I don't see that Manafort or Flynn is going to really care about protecting the president or other people close to the president. I can well imagine them, ha- if they have information that that implicates somebody else in the Trump administration, gladly squealing it in exchange for for a break. That feels right, particularly if you look at, at H.R. Haldeman's connection to and affection for Richard Nixon was extraordinary. Now, maybe not so true of John Dean, but you're quite right. And also, anybody who might have had that kind of residual affection is not really involved in this story, at least as far as we know now. I mean, there are some people who are very close and, and loyal to Donald Trump still left in the administration, but lots of them are now gone. They're settling scores. And also, it's I felt with the, the Manafort stuff that the reason they were picking the lock, and oh, by the way, there was a wiretap on Manafort for a long time, it seems, which means that when the judge was convinced to give the warrant that allowed the lock picking, you know, we always thought if that was if since that happened, there must they must have had something some good reason to be able to get that warrant. But now we know that they had possibly wiretaps. So I mean, the reason was probably quite good. 
they can squeeze Manafort and all the things that were done in the campaign were done with the, the view that they probably weren't going to win. So the kind of carefulness you would have under normal circumstances were pro- was probably well out the window. And it just feels like they've got, with, between Flynn and Manafort, two very good can openers to get information from within the campaign and within the administration. Do you think, Emily, just because you're almost a lawyer, <laughs> you're as close to a lawyer Officially a lawyer, just never hire me to do anything. Uh if you had to put a timeline on when when you think there'll be some public news out of the Mueller investigation, do you get the sense like it's weeks away, months away, years away? I feel like nobody really knows, but the sort of speculation is that Mueller doesn't like investigations that drag on for years and that were at months rather than years, but probably not weeks. And one reason I say that is that he seems to have branched out into, you know, different areas. There's the Russian meddling, you know, Facebook-connected investigation. There's the obstruction investigation about the firing of Jim Comey. There are questions about business dealings going back years. I mean, there's 17 prosecutors working on this investigation now, which is a lot. But you're still talking about a lot of different paths to go down and leads to chase. So it seems to me like months is a good estimate. And the, the big question politically is it's going to be before or after 2018 elections. Can we just, uh, and maybe Emily, you can feel this, the New York Times story about Trump's lawyers being overheard. I know we're going to talk <laughs> about the, the journalistic integrity question of that in Slate Plus. But that was kind of extraordinary that an overheard com- uh, conversation took place where one lawyer was complaining that the other had uh, that uh, um, Don McGahn, the White House counsel, had documents in a safe that he was keeping, presumably keeping from the special counsel. Is that the way you read that piece? You know, Don McGahn has different interests here than President Trump or than Ty Cobb, Trump's personal lawyer, because Don McGahn is protecting himself, but also he's protecting the role of the <laughs> of the White House counsel. And so, look, if McGahn really wanted to keep those documents from the special prosecutor, he would burn them. The idea of locking them in the safe suggests that he is trying to, he's going to make an argument about attorney-client privilege and maintaining that privilege strongly for the president's relationship with the White House counsel, but not that he's, like, destroying documents, right? Right, So I think it has more to do with his role. And there are questions about his role. I mean, in the Clinton investigations, the the idea that the president can just throw this blanket over his communications with the White House counsel and call it all privileged was um, was like Clinton didn't get to do that. There turned out to be holes in that idea at the time, and so there it, it, McGahn is dealing with some you know real institutional questions here about the president's prerogative to keep all of that back and forth with his counsel secret. You know, I understand that we until Mueller announces indictments or until he issues a report, it's hard to judge the political impact. It just feels to me, though, John, that this story as a political story, it's obviously super important as a criminal justice story and as a as a danger to the republic. But that as a political story, I feel like there's a less energy behind it than than there was. Am I wrong to think that or can well, could that just be, you know, reignited with a little oxygen? I feel the the latter for a couple of reasons. I think you're right at the moment there is less energy in it. I'm always amused by people who say President Trump is trying to distract from the investigation by doing X and Y. So Bob Robert Mueller does not seem to be distractible. And so the investigation continues whether we're talking about it on Twitter or not. And so all of these various revelations prove that and, in fact, prove that the iceberg is really big. I mean, in other words, they're going back 11 years with Manafort. They're picking locks and coming in, you know, before the sun has uh, risen in the sky. There are new revelations about uh, deals that Michael Flynn was working on in the White House and the way he used the White House job to help those foreign deals go along. So, like, Donald Trump could do an Anything he wants, it do, it's not going to distract from this. I know that's not the argument you were making, but I'm just—it's just an aside. I think that um, it has been out of the news in part because uh, the news business has an attention deficit problem. And by the way, the thing that one of the things that's distracting is North Korea and Graham Cassidy, and those are important. But what we learned from the various little revelations is just how big and deep this investigation is. And so it seems to me that whenever it appears again, or when it appears in its final form. 
there's something there's something there. Even let's say if no one gets indicted, it matters what his final like is he, if nobody gets indicted, will he issue a final report or something? Even if he doesn't, there's going to be lots and lots of more information to come out. And, and even if it's not criminal, it's not going to be very flattering, I don't think. And I do think that does have some um, some implications, uh, although. The Republican leaders in the House and the Senate have shown um, extraordinary loyalty to President Trump in the face of personal insult, things that he said, you know, Charlottesville and so on. So I don't think it'll crack up uh, maybe the Republican Party, given the extraordinary um, closeness they've kept with him. But I do think it'll be politically uh, we'll have another several moments that'll be initiated by what Mueller's got. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In an unusual 40 minute speech to the United Nations, the speech of the United Nations is one of those weird rituals of the presidency, which every year you forget, oh, yeah, the president has to go give some speech to the United Nations. But in an unusual 40-minute speech, President Trump outlined a very muscular view of the world. This week, he vowed to totally destroy North Korea if it messed with us or messed with its neighbors, calling Kim Jong-un a rocket man to much glee and acclaim. Or and criticism, I suppose. He hinted very strongly that he'd pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. He said not a word about climate change, but a lot about American sovereignty and America firstism, and outlined a kind of view of the world in which nations kind of can pursue their own self-interest, except on the occasions when the United States decides that that nation's self-interest shouldn't be pursued, and then we have the right to go and mess with it. So. I did think that there it was a little bit too much made of Trump saying that we would totally destroy yeah. North Korea. John, you're, you're mumble there. I'm assenting. You might agree with that. No, no, no yeah. I, I agree. But I didn't want to interrupt your your point. But I'm happy to if uh, if you're please, okay. please. Okay. So continue. yeah, why not, was too much made of this? I would like to hear the explanation of why. The president said, "If we must defend ourselves and our allies, then we will destroy North Korea." That's been U.S. policy for a billion years. But defend ourselves presumably means if North Korea attacks. In theory, that is a more reasonable position relative to the previous positions of Democratic administrations than the president's previous position, which was that North Korea would see fire and fury of a kind mankind has not seen if it just merely threatens the United States again. So uh, so I, some people wrote it as if he said that they will be destroyed if they continue their nuclear program. I think that's that's a stretch from the actual language that he used. It was a pretty, uh, you know, hearing about the destruction of countries um, is still jarring in that in that set piece moment. What I was struck with the respect to North Korea, and then I'll shut up, is that he put the onus for solving the North Korea problem on the United Nations. And he said, you know, we're willing to act and we will if we must, but this is what the United States, uh, the United Nations is for and we'll see what it does. What he didn't do was say, this is really all up to China. And that China, if it wants to be a diplomatic player on the world stage, should step in and deal with North Korea. He thanked China and Russia for what they had done so far through the United Nations. And the reason I think that's interesting is, the North Korea story is really as much about China, if not more. And two positive signals have been sent towards China, presumably in repayment for what China has done so far. First, the president's going to go visit in November. A visit by an American president bestows a certain amount of prestige on the Chinese. So that's one way in which... Man, I would the, not feel that way. I would not well, feel that way, incidentally. Well, the, that's <laughs> one way in which the U.S. government is saying you know, thank you. And we'll we'll show you you're a, a nation, a great nation worthy of the visit from the American president. The second thing was his thanking him in, in the speech. There was a little tiny glancing blow on the South China Sea, but it was almost, you know, unrecognizable as opposed to thanking Russia and China for what they'd done so far in North Korea, which is very different than the public jawboning of China in which the president has repeatedly says they're not doing enough. I mean, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is that I do fear that that we will kind of give a lot to China in exchange for whatever limited help they supply on North Korea so that China will use North Korea's leverage to get trade concessions and and other kinds of things that maybe President Trump 
wouldn't want to give. The, in terms of throwing the North Korea problem to the United Nations, that's a classic. That's it's, it's almost like the Graham Casty bill. It's like you solve the problem. I don't have any ideas, and so it's just your responsibility. And so if we fail to contain North Korea, then it's the United Nations that's failed. It's not the United States. But the, I think that reflects a kind of complete absence of ideas for what to do about North Korea within the U.S. government. That's a fair point. I think uh, what what I was noting was that it struck me that that. He throws it in the lap of the UN. He had been throwing it in the lap of China. Um, now, maybe you could throw it in both laps. Right. And maybe because you're at the UN, uh, you know, it's the time to throw it in their lap. But I do agree with what you're saying because in part you also say, hey, we gave it to the UN. That's a collective agreement place. And they did all, you know, but they're ultimately feckless. We got to move. And that is, we've seen that play before. You're quite right. Emily, underlying president trump's speech not even underline it it was the it was it wasn't subtext it was the text we're a sovereign nation we act in our interests other nations should act in that way it was a very skeptical of kind of multilateralism skeptical of other forms of non um, nation state activity what did you make of that you know if you take it literally it's a real change in how americans see their role in the world it's pulling back from any kind of um human rights um championing. The, I don't think the words human rights or maybe even individual rights were in the speech. And it's a very transactional and like hunkered down way of thinking of the United States, which is really different than the role that we've played and certainly our own self-image and what, what we've projected since World War II, if not before. So, I mean, I found all of that to be just kind of depressing. But I, the part of the speech that bothered me the most was the part about Iran, because this just seems to be like Trump's personal vendetta against an accomplishment of President Obama's that the other countries of the world are in support of. The inspectors say that Iran is abiding by its side of the agreement. And the notion that, you know, the president's going to cancel this agreement out of some kind of like petty desire to just undo the accomplishments of President Obama is scary, especially at a moment where we're supposedly trying to convince North Korea that there's a reason to negotiate with us and reach an agreement. I just find that that in terms of actual real concrete implications for how Trump could be damaging um, world relations, damaging the United States um, status in the world, that was the part that seemed to me like the most disturbing. Seriously, plus one to that. Um, uh, just one quick note on the human rights. There is, uh, there was mention of the of human rights in the speech in which the president talked about the egregious human rights uh, records of the countries that sit on the Human Rights Council. But what was striking about that was that it highlighted one of the main intellectual gaps in the speech. And unlike most Trump speeches in which we're um, encouraged not to take them literally, this is being framed by his administration as a part of the Trump worldview and vision. Who did he praise for uh, in his speech, Saudi Arabia? Well, who has a terrible human rights record both at home and is a part of what some people and what a lot of conservatives say is an atrocious collection of atrocities in Yemen? Saudi is that Arabia. Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia. I was going to guess. Now, gonna they guess, yeah. they sit on the UN Human Rights Council. Now, the, what the people that the president meant when he made that shot, took that shot at the Human Rights Council, was Cuba and Venezuela. But picking on Cuba and Venezuela and not on Saudi Arabia and Turkey, he also praised Turkey for work um, that it had done, leaving aside, again, its human rights challenges and author authoritarian abuses. Um, which would include, I should note, The Hill has a story on Wednesday about the president calling the Turkish uh, president Erdogan and saying, apologizing to uh, the president for the fact that 16 of his um, or 19 of his uh, thugs were indicted for beating up protesters at the Turkish embassy. Now, the Trump White called and apologized for that. That's what the yeah, that's what. Erdogan, oh, my God. That's what you Erdogan, see that footage. It was shocking. That's what the that's what Erdogan said. The White House is denying it. But nevertheless, in the U.S. UN speech, the president praised Turkey. So if you're somebody watching the speech who doesn't live in the United States and you think, where is the United States on the human rights question? It seems to be highly transactional and therefore not terribly meaningful in terms of uh, an elevation of certain immutable values that, uh, you know, the national, uh, I'm sorry, the global right. community should support. Right, right. If you're going to, I mean, Fred Kaplan makes this point very well in a piece he wrote in Slate, which is, Trump's main point was nation's going to nation. Nations can do what they want. 
And then he but then he picks out particular nations, Cuba, Venezuela, Iran, North Korea, and saying, well, every other nation can kind of do what they want. But you guys, you're committing human rights violations. You're doing things which are endangering us. So we have the right to act against you. It's a uh, hypocrisy and attention. But well, I suppose it's the same hypocrisy and tension that we always have. We always you support your allies and you, right. you but, find ways to justify them and undermine others. Right. Although it's a it, it the frame of sovereignty and patriotism for each country. And when the president right. says every U.N. country should ask, what's the patriotic thing to do? Well, in North Korea, you know what the answer is? Build a big missile <laughs> that's that has nuclear capability. So that's totally at odds with the other message of his speech with respect to North Korea, Iran, Cuba and Venezuela. So intellectually, as a speech, it didn't it, it was at war with itself. Well, better to have a speech at war with itself than us at war with others, but we'll leave it there. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. If you want to understand what is happening in the United States right now, you really need to understand what's happening with the courts, the law, and the Supreme Court. The battle between democracy and whatever this cage match is that we're witnessing, it's going to be won and lost at the ballot box, but it's also going to be won and lost in the courtrooms. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I host Slate's legal podcast, Amicus, and we are doubling our output, bringing you weekly episodes from here on in, because how else can we keep an eye on the many trials of Donald Trump, the conservative legal movement's assaults on our rights, the Supreme Court's latest slate of environmental gutting, gun safety, eviscerating cases on the docket? So follow Amicus wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes dropping every Saturday morning. Let us go to cocktail chatter when, Emily Bazelon, you are contemplating the latest news from Washington, the latest news from the world, and you're pouring yourself three thumbs worth of your favorite alcoholic beverage. What will you be chattering about to Mr. Bazelon? You mean when I'm drinking my Manischewitz? Um, exactly. I um, am, as we've talked about sometimes on the show, I'm especially sensitive to any indication that the federal government is suppressing information. And so I was alarmed by a story this week in the Times by Julie Davis and Samini Sengupta about the Trump administration rejecting and not releasing a study by the Department of Health and Human Services that found that refugees brought in $63 billion more in government revenues over the last 10 years than they cost. So basically, HHS was asked to look at this question of how much refugees cost. The Trump administration, of course, is talking about lowering the number of refugees we take in far below 50,000, itself really not that many, given how many millions of people around the world need help. Talking about cutting that number to as low as, you know, 15,000. And part of the argument is supposed to be that we can't afford to help these people, that they're a drain on the economy. Well, it turns out they're not a drain on the economy because they take jobs and they pay taxes. And we actually um, more than make back what we spend on them. But that was not an outcome. That was not a result of the study that the administration welcomed. And so they just decided that it was wrong and they weren't going to release it. And this is just the kind of interference from within the executive branch, getting in the way of, you know, honest fact finding, and of um, performing the, a really important role of government, which is just to present an accurate picture for us of what the society and the economy look like. I just find this stuff to be like fingernails on a chalkboard in terms of my fears about how the government is changing. And the only good thing about this story is that we actually found out about it because someone inside HHS leaked this report to the Times, but we have no idea how often this is happening and we're not finding out about it wow that is that was a shocking story john the dickerson what is your chatter 
I, my chatter is about a piece that was in the cut.com. And it's the story behind the greatest internet recipe comment of all time. And I will read you the internet recipe comment. It's just 74 words. It was in the New York Times. Uh, you may both know about this from a couple of years ago. And it's, uh, it's in a response about brownies. This has been my go-to brownie recipe for 30 years. In the 80s, an acquaintance in Germany to whom I brought some of the brownies and who considered herself a great cook asked for the recipe but was never able to get it to work. She kept asking me what she was doing wrong and I was never able to solve her problem. Eventually, she moved to the U.S. and stole my husband. <laughs> so um, it's all about the kicker. It's all about the kicker. Uh, now, anyway, what the cut does is it goes and gets the backstory, and so uh, I don't want to spoil it for you. But um, I somehow uh, had not heard about this comment, so it was f- a fresh discovery for me. I was interested and amused to to see the little story behind it. That reminds me. Of, actually, there's such. If you have not, uh, this is not my chatter, but if you have not had the chance to read the story or watch the moth about this woman who describes the 36 hours in her life when her husband left her, um, her world kind of collapsed, and she discovered the BRCA1 gene. It is the most astonishing story that you will hear. It's so much fun. Uh, you just look look for, like, BRCA and, you know, 36 hours or something. Uh, we'll, we'll try to post a link to it. It's It's such a joyful little backstory of a of a terrible and yet wonderful episode in someone's life my chatter is very uh, much up your alley john which is it, it's actually a chatter i've been sitting on for months it was a thing i saw in jason kotke's wonderful blog uh, kotke.org months ago and it is a short video called seven ways to make yourself miserable and uh, somebody named cgp gray shares seven tactics to maximize your misery. And these seven tactics are to stay still, screw with your sleep, maximize your screen time, use your screen to stoke your negative emotions, set vapid goals, pursue happiness directly, and follow your instincts. And it's <laughs> it's just about how each of those things undermines you and damages you. With the internet so filled, with, with the world is so filled with people telling you how to be happy, it's very good to get people telling you how to be miserable because it's actually sometimes easier to avoid the things that damage you than to pursue the things that make you happy. And uh, I strongly endorse the ideas presented in this. And and I certainly, like, number one, stay still. It, it is, I, I'm certainly, this is true of me, that 85% of my, my mental health can be attributed to just being able to move around a lot. So if you can move around a lot, move around. It makes you happier. Uh, so yes, but there you've suddenly slipped into giving to people advice on how to be happy. Yes, you're so right, you've, right. You're I failed, arguing I failed. against cause. I failed. I failed. And apparently the video is derived from a book I don't know, but which also sounds great, which is by Randy Patterson called How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Rode. And if you like what we're doing or you want to have more of a conversation or learn more about it or be part of a community of GabFest fans, go to facebook.com slash GabFest where we post links, talk about some of the things we talked about and there's a general general, general community around the GabFest. Uh, soon we're going to be asking you to contribute some of your conundrums to us on that page for our conundrums show so you want to get, get in there early and be prepared with conundrums facebook.com slash gabfest for emily Bazelon and john dickerson i'm david plotz wishing you a happy new year to those of you who are celebrating it and those of you who are not happy new year anyway we'll talk to you next week judy was boring hello then judy discovered chumbacasino.com it's my little escape now judy's the life of the party oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon whoa take it easy judy the Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.